All right, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I really need you this morning. Oh, how I need you. And just as the psalmist cried out when he was in distress, Lord, I cry out for you to come in your power this morning, Lord. I need you. Thank you that you are good, that you are always good, and that your steadfast love is forever. It never fails. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My family has songs that we associate with different events or different occasions, and especially around the mealtime when our grandkids are with us, uh, we sing before a meal, and it's, it goes like this. Oh, the Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord. Maybe you guys know that one. But it, as I was singing it, you know, multiple times a day with my grandkids during the last week and a half, I thought, you know, that's Psalm 118. <laughs> the Lord is good to me. And um, another uh, uh, song that brings back memories to me um, of God's intervention in our family is uh, back in the 40s and 50s, my mom contracted polio. Her family gathered around her. You know, there was so much paralysis and death at that time associated with that virus. And so they, they prayed for her, and they also did treatment. They used the experimental treatment that uh, Sister Kenny developed, you know, with the hot packs on the, on the legs and arms. And... Um, I'm happy to tell you that through God's grace, through the laying-ons of hands and prayer and the treatments, my mom made a full recovery. She just has a little weakness in one leg. But she remembers the song that they sang. She was eight years old when this happened. The song that they sang over and over by her bedside was, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your great salvation so rich and free. And so growing up as a little girl, that was one that just was really special to me. And so too, the people of Israel had songs that they would sing on special occasions and for times when God would tell them that they were to make special trips to Jerusalem. So they would sing. And I just wanted to have you think, do you have a life theme song? Are you regularly giving thanks to the Lord and singing and thanking him for his goodness for you and his love for you? So now this psalm starts and ends the very same way, with a command to give thanks. And it includes two very well-known reasons. The first reason is, for he is good. And the second reason is, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we praise the Lord for who he is, that is, he is faithful, he is gracious, he is loving, he is mighty, he is powerful, his love is forever. And then we also thank him for what he has done. He has saved us, he's delivered us, and he's delivered his people with his powerful right hand. So everything in the middle of this sandwich is explaining how God shows that incredible steadfast love. So a, a song of steadfast love is Thank you, God, for your faithful, loyal love and salvation. So we see God's sovereign power over the nations shining through in a time of crisis as he delivered his people from their enemies and he gave them reasons to celebrate as they look to the future with confidence in their promise-keeping, always loving God and his ability to act on their behalf. So Psalm 107 to 150 make up book five which actually begins the very same way that Psalm 118 begins. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
So each year, the people of Israel were instructed by God to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate God's rescue. And Psalm 117, which comes right before Psalm 18, is one of the very shortest chapters in the Bible. And it would be sung as the people were coming down off of the Mount of Olives, they were crossing the Kidron Valley, and they were approaching Jerus the city of Jerusalem, they were climbing this steep hill up to where the temple sat on top of the hill. And they would sing the whole Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And then Psalm 118 starts, and this is the sixth and the final of the Egyptian halal, or praise psalms, that were sung by these Jewish worshipers. So they would sing them during two big festivals. The first one is Passover, and Passover celebrates the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so this is celebrated in the spring, and usually it coincides with our Christian celebrations of Palm Sunday, Holy Week, which you guys were just talking about, and Easter. And so Psalm 118 was sung before and after the Passover meal. And so Jesus and his disciples would have sung this psalm in the upper room and as they were leaving after that meal to go out to pray at the Garden of Gethsemane. The other feast that they would sing this psalm at is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this was a time of thanksgiving for the harvest. So this took place in the fall, and it was a time of great joy. And it was one of the celebrations that was required of them that they actually had to go to Jerusalem for. And what they did was they would make these booths that were like three-sided lean-tos with palm branches or other kinds of branches over the top that was their roof. And they would camp outdoors for seven days. And this was not a reminder of how difficult it was in the wilderness, but instead it was a reminder of how God had provided for them in the midst of their wanderings in the wilderness in the desert. So now this word hallel or hallelu is a, might be a new Hebrew term for you, but you know that Hebrew word hallelujah, right? You know that praise word. And sometimes I think we say things without knowing what they actually mean. Well, because the Hebrew, the translators sometimes leave it in the Hebrew instead of translating it into the English. But halal or halelu, technically here, it's a second person imperative plural form. Did you get all that? What it means is it's someone is commanding a group of people to do something. And what we're commanding, what we're commanded to do is to praise. Okay, so halal means praise, all of you praise. And then yah, in hallelujah is actually a shortened form of Yahweh, the Lord, that we see in all caps. And so this shortened word, it's actually spelled J-A-A, -A, right? But it's Yah. And we find it here in Psalm 118 where the psalmist quotes from Exodus chapter 15, the Song of Moses. There's other names in the Bible like Elijah, if you think about that. That is actually a shortened form of Elohim, El for God, and Jah, or Yah. So the Lord is my God, Elijah. So now the very last word in the book of Psalms is hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now we don't know who wrote this psalm. Scholars debate whether the first person sections are speaking of Israel or whether it's a Davidic king, uh, you know, or if it could even be David himself. And we don't know when the psalm was written, but we know that the Exodus theme is shining through here. 
And these psalms were meant to give hope to the people of Israel as they had been taken captive in Babylon and were just returning to the land, starting to rebuild the temple, and there was a lot of opposition again, so this was meant to be an encouragement. You read in your homework in Ezra 3, it's suggested here that when the temple was rebuilt after they came back, that they sang this psalm according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they were to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Right, now you probably notice that there are different voices in this psalm or different levels. There's sections in the singular, there's sections in the plural. You see lots of repeated phrases and this might indicate that this, was, this psalm was used as a call and response where a leader would say one phrase, the people would respond. And similar, you know, the way we do it with a responsive reading in church. So picture what it would be like to be a part of this great throng of people. They're headed toward Jerusalem for the Passover or for, for the Feast of Booths, and the leaders are calling out, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And all of us in the crowd respond, for his steadfast love endures forever. Right, so I wrote on your handout, there's, there's four kind of different levels that we're gonna look at, and we're gonna mix them all together as we walk through this psalm. But we have the voice of an individual in the singular here, could be a king, we have the corporate voice of Israel. We know that Israel was rejected by the nations around them. And we shouldn't be surprised that this also points to Jesus. That's the third level. Um, he is the cornerstone that was rejected by those leaders who should have known better, but they did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, and number four, it's a source of comfort for us as well. We can put ourselves into this psalm and identify with it. Okay, so this wasn't an easy psalm to outline, um, so that's why I have so many different points because I couldn't figure out how to group them all together. But basically, we have two halves. We have verses one through 18, which the leaders and the worshipers are together and they're approaching Jerusalem. They're singing as they're going. They're praising God for his mercy and his deliverance. They're giving thanks to Yahweh for he is good. And then verses 19 through 29, they have arrived at the temple, they're at the gates, and their worship continues at the gates. And they're singing the song of this great deliverer who has, who has um, led them, the one who enters the gate, and he makes a way for the righteous to also enter. So, number one, praising God for his great mercy and deliverance. We see first the call to worship in verses one through four. This psalm is sandwiched here by this call to give thanks and the two reasons. And we're gonna do this responsively this morning. And just a note that those who fear the Lord are really non-Israelites, which would include most of us, unless some of you come from a Hebrew background. And those who fear the Lord are those who, who have come to take refuge and think God is their God. So let's say this together. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, steadfast love endures forever. Now what is his steadfast love? I could hear one of you telling, I think maybe it was Laura, talking about looking up that word this, this week in your homework. This is hesed. This is God's faithful covenant love of God that will never run out. It will never vanish. And we will keep proclaiming this steadfast goodness and love forever. And then the rest of the psalm unpacks how God shows his steadfast love to his people. 
So the Old Testament repeatedly proclaims that the Lord is good and that he abounds in his love to his people. Exodus 34, 6, you looked up. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And without that steadfast love, there would be no people of God. And we read in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we come in verses five through 18 to a testimony here. This is the voice of the individual. We hear echoes of Psalm two here. Uh, do you remember in Psalm two, why do the nations rage, raging against the Lord's anointed? And we also hear echoes of Psalm 46, where God is our very present help in time of trouble. So verses five through nine, there's a brief testimony and a reflection on God's steadfast love. In verse five, he talks about being distressed or hemmed in. And this made us think of the people of Israel when they were in Egypt, when they cried out to the Lord when they were in slavery. And God heard their cries and he answered them. And then he also delivered them at the Red Sea when they were hemmed in by Pharaoh and his armies and he made a way through the sea. And then think of Jesus singing this psalm with his disciples in the upper room the night of his betrayal and his, his arrest, knowing that his suffering was before him, knowing he was going to the cross. And maybe unlike anyone else ever, Jesus would call on the Lord in that distress that he had in his soul. In verse six and seven, he confesses though that the Lord is on my side. Literally, he is for me. And so Paul wrote in Romans 8, if God is for me, who can be against me, right? And if this is true, there is no reason to fear, period, because Jesus is victorious. God is on our side. It follows then in verse 8 and 9 that we should trust in him. We should, it's better to trust in him. So in verses uh, 10 through 14 now, we see a longer, more detailed account of how he was surrounded by his enemies. These hostile enemies had also surrounded Israel. We think of the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Syrians, ultimately Assyria, who carried them off into captivity. And this is also a description of the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, when Israel was occupied by Rome. So you notice in the section that there is kind of a ramping up of this description, right? There's all nations surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like angry bees swarming around me. And this doesn't sound like it's an average person going through an average daily trial. All nations want to destroy this one. How does this one survive? In the name of the Lord, that's how. That's repeated three times, that with the Lord on his side and working on his behalf, he can respond with courage. And remember that in the name of the Lord, Israel had seen deliverance. Remember when David went up against Goliath, do you remember what he said? I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. Or when Israel was surrounded by enemies in Hezekiah's time, and the Lord stepped in and did what only God could do to deliver them. 
Now this image of bees swarming is a kind of a creepy one, right? I don't like bees, but I have a cousin who is a beekeeper and she loves to go out and, and take care of bees. And, and I think we've got Ursina and her husband do bees as well. So, you know, if you know how to, to handle bees, they're not scary, but for the average person, it's, it's scary. Um, but these enemies that have swarmed them like bees are easily destroyed because they burn up like thorns which are so dry and crackly, they just burn right up and then the fire is out. So verse 13, um, this idea of being um, pushed hard, this could refer to Israel at the Red Sea when they were surrounded by Pharaoh and his army here, but the Lord helped them and saved them. And so in verse 14, we see the opening words of Moses' victory song are quoted exactly. The Lord, and here is the shortened form that I talked about earlier, Yah, not Yahweh, it says Yah, is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He not only saves, but he, he himself is that salvation. And that word salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua. That to know Yeshua is to know salvation. And so I think that is sweet because that is the name that was given to our Savior, Jesus, Yeshua. Now think about, again, how Jesus would have been singing these words, knowing that only a few hours later, he truly would be surrounded by hostile enemies. He would be mocked, he would be beaten, he would be scorned, and he would go to the cross. We've just been in Acts chapter 4 this week in our sermon series, and we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Jesus was surrounded by these foes just as God had planned. And Jesus knew that as he sang this psalm before he went to the cross and was surrounded by those enemies. And he did that so that he could triumph over every principality and power on our behalf. Now we come to verses 15 through 18 and we see joyful expressions of gratitude here. In verse 15, the word that's used is the righteous. You remember that's one of the themes that we've seen through the Psalms. When we studied Psalm 1, the righteous are those who are in a right legal position before God. Tents, these are the joyful uh, tents that were built during the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Um, the people could be, the singing could be heard coming from these tents during the Feast of Booths, and it reminded them of their sojourn through the wilderness and how God had provided for them. So these throngs of people were coming and they're singing this. So this joyful music coming from the tents reminds us of that festival. Now three times we see God's right hand mentioned. As we saw last week in Psalm 77, this reminds us of the song of Moses at the Red Sea, when God made a way. Also, we see this phrase, the right hand of the Lord exalts. Think about how when a, a team wins a, a game and how they raise their arms in victory, that's what this means, the right hand exalts. God is victorious. All right, deliverance of the one had resulted in more joy coming to the tents of the righteous because they too had been delivered. Because the Father delivered Jesus, we too are delivered. In verse 17, the psalmist has confidence that although he would die, he would not die ultimately, but he would live another day to proclaim the deeds of Yah, the Lord. Again, think of Jesus singing this song with his disciples at the Last Supper. 
he could confidently sing these words, knowing that death would not be victorious over him, but he would defeat death. He would destroy death, and he would rise again, and he would declare the works of the Lord. Now, in verse 18, the discipline is severe, and in the case of Israel, their captivity was their near-death experience, and it was due to their sin, and yet God had not given up on them. His never-failing love was always with him. His love was steadfast. Now, this also points us to Jesus, who was disciplined severely for us, although he had no sin. Our sin was put on him. He bore our sin for us. But God did not allow death to gain victory over him. All right, second half, corporate praise, verses 19 through 29. This second half is also another... sandwich of thanksgiving, as you see in verse 19 and verse 28. Verse 19 through 21, we see the gate here. Imagine that you are in this great throng of people approaching the gate of the temple, and because of his victory over death, the leader requests to open the gates and enter for thanksgiving and praise. And this could refer to the actual gates of the temple, because he wants to come where the people gather for worship and to give praise and thanks and testify of Yahweh's goodness and steadfast love. And all of God's people need to enter through this gate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. And Matthew 7 writes about the narrow gate. And John records Jesus himself saying that he is the door. He is the gate. He is the way. Now in verses 22 through 24, we have a shift in the image, and we're going to see God's amazing cornerstone here. When the builders laid the foundation of the second temple following the exile, they sang this psalm, and some scholars do suggest that perhaps this is about the literal cornerstone of the second temple. We don't know that that's just a guess. The stone can refer to Israel, that's another level, and the life of David. But in light of the New Testament and the way it's quoted, you saw all the ways that it's quoted, right, this week in your homework, we know that this points to Jesus, who he was rejected by the Jewish leaders who should have known better. He is the stone who has become the cornerstone, and he is raised to the highest point of honor. Every other stone depends on this stone. And this is how Jesus himself understood this psalm. And Peter followed by applying it to the Jewish authorities and to all who refused the gospel. Jesus, who was despised and rejected, treated as trashed, he has been exalted above every name, we read in Philippians, right? Given that name above every name. And this is indeed the Lord's doing, and it's one of God's amazing wonders, and it's far greater than any of his wonders that he did even in Egypt. This is the day, this new day, the day when refers to when this, this rejected stone is exalted. And what is that day that we celebrate? It could be uh, referring to this Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem because that's, you know, that's part of the, of the context that it was used. But also it refers to the day that Jesus rose from the dead when he is alive and he is exalted to that high place. Now, Verse 25 and 26, our salvation. We have another shift in image here. No longer the cornerstone, but we see joyful worshipers. Um, A friend's young son once asked her, what about that time when people took off their clothes and praised Jesus? (laughs) She was racking her brain saying, what? 
what could that refer to? And then he said, well, you know, when they, they laid down their clothes and they waved some branches? Oh, yeah, Palm Sunday, when they took off their cloaks. That would be like their coats not taking off their clothes. But, <laughs> but uh, isn't it beautiful the way our kids pick up on some of these things? Well, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a fulfillment of this psalm here. And later at the temple, the children were singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord and Hosanna. And remember how the religious leaders were very upset? They were furious that the children were singing and they asked Jesus to shut up the children's voices. And Jesus quoted then Psalm 8. Remember a few weeks ago we studied Psalm 8. To them, to these leaders, Jesus was not worthy of the praise that these children were giving him. These leaders rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. Now you saw in your homework that Jesus referred to these verses when he addressed the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And he said, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Jesus is Yahweh's answer to their cries for Hosanna, save us. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they reject him, just like they rejected the prophets before. And their house, their temple, it's desolate. It's no longer the center of worship. True worship is in the temple where Jesus is the cornerstone. In verse 27, we see Jesus is our light. The Lord is God. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is the all-powerful, sovereign God. One part of the celebration of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles involved light. When the temple was still standing, giant pillars like candelabras were erected uh, in the temple courts, and they had these large gold basins that were filled with oil, and then they would use, they, according to some sources, they used worn out priestly undergarments as wicks, and then they would light these on fire. And so on the top of the hill where the temple was, there would be this blaze of light that just shone down from the top of the hill. And this reminded the people of the way God led them in the wilderness, when through the pillar of fire and the cloud, he led them through the wilderness. Now, in John 8, we learn that Jesus stood up in the middle of the temple, in the midst of the celebration of the Feast of Booths, and he said, I am the light of the world. He was making this radical statement, I am that pillar of fire. I am God. He is the one who is coming, and he is the light that Yahweh shines on them in verse 27. Jesus is the light. John 1, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 27 also talks about the sacrifice our sacrifice. So think about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the people sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And here is Jesus, the cornerstone, who is rejected, the Messiah, the King, the Lamb, the perfect spotless sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he is on his way into Jerusalem. He's on his way to be bound to the cross. He's on the way to the altar. His hour had come. 
for him to lay down his life for those who believe. So as this is the last of the six of these halal psalms that the Jews sang during Passover, it's highly likely, as I said before, that this is mentioned in the Gospels, um, that Jesus and his disciples sang this before they went out to pray to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they sang these words, think about that, how Jesus was singing these words, inviting God the Father to bind him to the cross, to be that sacrifice for our sins. Verses 28 and 29, we have our thanksgiving. This powerful, sovereign God of verse 27 is my God. It's personal here. It's a desire of the psalmist to see his God exalted and extolled and praised. And so this psalm ends the way it began with a command to give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And we've seen that this eternally enduring steadfast love is shown through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now I have some gospel reflections and you have them written down. Um, I know I've gone, we started a little bit late, but are you okay with me going for a few more minutes? Okay, all right. We walk through the psalm at various levels. We heard different voices, and we've seen how it points to Jesus, but I just want us to walk through again and see how it can strengthen us and encourage us. Verses one through four, this is point number one, sing. As we sing a song of steadfast love, thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Let's not keep that song to ourselves. As we praise the Lord for his goodness and his everlasting love, do it. Do it and sing it so that others can hear that praise. Tell how the Lord has expressed his steadfast love for you. Don't hide your story of deliverance. Encourage your brothers and sisters in the Lord that he is good, even when life is hard. He's especially good to his covenant people who fear him. And as Paul wrote in Romans 8, there's absolutely nothing, including tribulation, persecution, even death. Death can't separate us from this steadfast love of God. So sing about this steadfast love. And then number two, share. What is your testimony? Perhaps you could look at verse five and say, I'm gonna share how God met me when I was in distress. I was in an extreme trial and God pointed out my need for a savior because I was in trouble. Or maybe you'd go to verse eight and nine and you'd say, this is how I've come to take refuge in the Lord. You can find refuge in him too. Or verse 13, maybe there was a time you were pushed hard and you were falling and you cried out to the Lord to save you and he did and he became your salvation. So let that be your song, share your song with others. And then pray, number three. Pray, the psalmist refers to God as his refuge and his strength and his salvation. He knew that if God did not come through, he was doomed. So out of his great need, he prayed, and we should pray as well. God uses all kinds of trials to show us our need for him so that we will pray. And I think when things are going relatively smoothly, I think we have the tendency to not go to him as often in prayer. But when we're in distress, I think my prayers become more focused and more fervent. So pray, go to him in prayer. And number four, he is good. And so don't let your trouble make you doubt that he is good. God is for us. And so when trouble hits, the enemy always tries to get us to doubt the goodness of God. We ask questions maybe like, well, if God is good and he loves us, then why is he letting this thing happen to me? 
Well, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, quotes the Greek translation of verses six and seven to encourage persecuted believers and us to find our contentment in God because God is with us and he has promised that he will uphold us, he will provide for us. With the Lord on our side helping us, even in our culture today where we could easily get canceled for our beliefs, we can look triumphantly on those who hate the Lord, who hate his word, and we can just expect that persecution, but we can get help from the Lord. He will help us, and then we can sing for joy because he is with us in the midst of that persecution. Number five, we have our sure salvation. Of course, we might experience emotional and physical pain. We may even die, but persecutors can't do anything to us ultimately that's harmful to us because our salvation is sure. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Paul states it beautifully in Romans 8. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So that should lead us to trust in him. Number six, trust. Because the Lord is on our side, it follows that it is indeed better to trust in him. Human help fails and leaders are unreliable, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can place our confidence in him. No prince, no president can protect me like the Lord. Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who put their trust in him. They can sing because he is faithful. Number seven, name versus nations. Nations can surround me, but God's name is faithful. When hemmed in on every side, God is my protector. He is my rescuer. I want to tell you a short story about being on a mission trip in the Philippines where I met a pastor, an evangelist, who was out in a village preaching, and he was captured by the rebel army. They were going to execute him, but they gave him one final wish. They said, you know, what would you like to do or eat or whatever? And he said, I would like to pray. So he began to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He prayed a very fervent, gospel-saturated, God-exalting, fervent prayer. And in that prayer, one of his captors became saved, <laughs> and he was released. And so God is powerful. That pastor that was saved, that, that former captor, is now a pastor, and so God worked in an amazing, amazing way. God can deliver us as well. So cry out to him. He is sovereign over all nations, army, rebels, whatever it is. Okay, number eight, sing. When God saves us, he fills us with joy. So let it overflow into the lives of others. We sing glad songs and we recount the deeds of the Lord and we give him thanks. Number nine, God alone. Our trust is in God alone. It is not about us. Our rescue comes from God's powerful hand. It's because he is sovereign. He is our loving father, and there's no power that can match his outstretched arm. Number 10, recount. Luther put verse 17, Martin Luther, that is, he put this verse on his wall, verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. He had this plaque on his wall to remind him because there were many reformers that were being um, put to death. And so he was cheered on by this verse, knowing that he would live as long as the Lord wanted him to keep recounting his deeds and his praise. Number 11, his glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when you tell others about him and you sing 
about how God is your strength, he gets all the glory. So don't keep it to yourself, but keep singing. Number 12, discipline. The Lord does discipline those he loves. Even when I sin and he finds reason to discipline me, he will do right. He always does. The gate, number 13. He is our gate, and only those who have the righteousness of Jesus can enter and sing these songs of salvation. And it's when we trust Jesus as our Savior that we get his righteousness that covers us, and that is what allows us to enter these gates. Number 14, thanks. My situation might bring me to tears, and my situation in the last week has brought me to tears many times. But God will hear me, and God will rescue me, and God will rescue those that I love and I'm praying for. So I will thank God, I will thank him, I will praise him that he has become my salvation. Number 15, God's way. It's foolish in the world's eyes, but God's way is to use the weak and the foolish and the rejected. We may or, or may not experience persecution or death for our faith, but we will face various trials. Maybe no one will understand me. Maybe they will walk away from me when I share my faith, but it doesn't matter. His plan is beautiful, and he will do something in and through me that others can't understand, like he did with Jesus. And we consider that amazing. It is marvelous. And we will sing. And number 16, extol. In Acts 4, after testifying that God had raised Jesus from the dead, Peter boldly proclaimed, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And Peter also said in his, his uh, epistle, he said, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So if you've experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, then you should be filled with joy and thanksgiving. You should be able to say, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. I give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That is what Psalm 118 is all about, proclaiming the excellencies of God's salvation. The people of Israel sang about their Savior as one that was yet to come, for they trusted the, that he was coming, although they didn't, they didn't recognize him when he came. But ever since he came, there have been some that have fiercely rejected him, and others, believers, have been singing of him, loud songs of praise, rejoicing in his sacrifice that brought us salvation. So what is your song? Are you singing to praise him? Are you saying thank you, thank you, Lord? Sing out loud, sing of his goodness, sing of his steadfast love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us, help us to sing of your goodness, of your unfailing love. You are good, you are always good. Thank you that your love endures forever and it never fails. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.